Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Lovely to have you with us. My name is Mike. Um, It's my privilege to to be with you just for a few moments this morning and sharing God's Word. Um, Over the past few weeks, we have been looking at how we might sail true in a culture storm. And Don gave an intro to the whole topic and talked about how we are in between two eras or in between in a grey zone, in in a liminal space. And then Chris spoke about the need for us sometimes to take risks in doing things for God, whether we are in the natural or in the supernatural. And then Megan brought a wonderful message last week on, and she talked about ballast and baggage and pointed us towards the character of Christ and the role of the church. And so this morning, I just want to take a few minutes of your time to reflect on some of the things that that rob us of the ability to navigate our way through a culture storm. And whether we are in a grey zone or whether we're in a liminal space or whether we are um, already moved to one era from the last, I believe that what's often called the three enemies of the soul, the flesh, the world and the devil, are, are making this period of time really difficult for us. Intentionally seeking to make this time tough. And Leonard Sweet says, he says, we find ourselves in a place where we have to do what we don't know what to do. And some of the solutions that we once had have now been disrupted and have gone. And Mark Sayers says in his book, A Non-Anxious Presence, he quotes political scientist Randall Schweller where he says, the world is undergoing transformation, a chaotic period where most anything can happen and little can be predicted, where yesterday's rule takers become tomorrow's rule makers, but no one follows the rules anymore, where competing global visions collide with each other, where remnants of the past and the present and the future coexist simultaneously. I think he's right. I went for a, a run a while back. Actually, a run is probably a stretch of the imagination. It was like a jog or a fast walk. But I went for a run. Let's, let's go with a run. Near, where I, near where, I, where I live, there's a gym. And, and what they do is they write these lovely little encouraging chalk messages around the pathway that, that I run. And they say things like, be your best self. You can do it. Don't give up. And I increased my pace for precisely the amount of time it gets me to get past my mate's place in case he's looking out the the window. Increase my pace, you know, suck up my chest, hold my breath to prevent the gasping noise coming out. But I thought, I wonder how these words actually apply in the context that we're living in at the moment. These overused slogans, how do they actually work in the context of our cultural storm? Be your best self. You can do it. Don't give up. You see, even my best self, and maybe your best self, is still full of holes and weaknesses and doubts and selfishness. And if surviving this cultural moment is is reliant on me being my best self, then I think we're going to be way too short. If this cultural moment, one where safety and security and stability has been shaken to the core, then me being my best self isn't going to be enough. Follow your heart, they say. As I was researching for this message this morning, I, I, 
I read the topic of this book. The, topic, the title was Follow Your Heart, 21 Days to a Happier, More Fulfilling Life. I didn't buy the book, by the way. 21 days, three weeks, everything's going to be fine. But Jeremiah, he describes the heart as deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it, he says. So if we can't rely on me being my best self, Perhaps we can rely on our economists. Reserve Bank's under a little bit of pressure at the moment. Perhaps we can rely on our economists to guide us through the, the, the rough waters of this cultural storm that we're in. Here's a disclaimer from one of our economists that reads like this. This publication has been provided for general information only. Although every effort has been made to ensure this publication is accurate, the content should not be relied upon or used as a basis for entering into any products described in this publication. I won't, read the, I won't read the rest. So if we can't rely on economists, perhaps we can rely on our financial advisors. They've got everything sorted. They'll work out what interest rates are going to do and give us some clarity for the future. Or can we? Here's a disclaimer from a financial advisor. Investing involves risk. I love this next sentence. It says, you aren't guaranteed to make money and you might lose the money you start with. We don't provide personalised advice or recommendations. You can read the rest yourself. So if we can't rely on my best self and we can't rely on the world's economic forecasts and financial advisors, perhaps we can just place faith in the notion that the natural currents of our culture will eventually take us where we need to go. So we just go with the flow and everything will be okay. Just going with the popular current of the time, buffeted by winds and waves and accepting that the narrative of life will simply be formed by circumstance or by fate. Or can we? Or can we? David Kinnaman, CEO of Barna Group, conducted a global survey in late 2019 of millennials and Gen Zers. More than 15,000 surveys from 25 countries and it showed that one of the central aspects of the experience of young adults around the world today, and it'll be no surprise to you, is anxiety. And that was before a pandemic, and it was before a war, and it was before, you know, right smack bang in the middle of the increase of social media influences. And he says, anxiety blankets our society and our lives like a thick, wet, bone-chilling fog. It hovers over both individuals and institutions, infusing personal and organisational life with new complexities. So it seems to me that the world just going with the flow isn't really working that well for us. I'd hasten to add that anxiety is not just limited to the domain of young adults, it's spreading like wildfire through children and families and those in their latter years. And it stands to reason in some ways that we're becoming an anxious people. One of the things that leads to anxiety is a perceived lack of control, which leads to fear, which leads to anxiety. And medical professionals describe anxiety as persistent fear. Leonard Sweet, um, I've mentioned him before, a futurist and a Christian, said in a book that he'd written in 1999, he said this, a sea change of transition and transformation is birthing a whole new world and a whole new set of ways of making our way in the world, we have moved out of the solid ground of terra firma into the tossing seas of terra aqua. The terra firma foundations that we could return to time and time again have now become the tossing sea of terra aqua, 
And many of the controls, or at least the feelings of control that we once had, are gone. The things that the world thought were normal foundations that we could rely upon may, in fact, now be described as abnormal. The things that were once static have now become fluid. And if our, cult if our culture simply navigates on things that are fluid, things like material wealth or beauty or fame or education or status or family, then it's safe to say that the current culture that we find ourselves in has largely and incredibly sadly ignored the heavens as our navigation for life. Because we know that material wealth can go. We know that beauty fades. We know that fame diminishes. We know that education become, becomes outdated. We know that status can easily be lost. We know that family members can leave us relationships broken. Ignatius, the Spanish priest theologian, he formed the Jesuit movement. He said this, and I really like what he said. He said, we should not fix our desires on health or sickness, on wealth or poverty, success or failure, a long life or a short one, for everything has the potential of calling forth in us a deeper response to our life forever with God. Our only desire and our one choice should be this. I want and choose what better leads to God's deepening life in me. And then inter intertwined in all this, intertwined in the flesh and in the world, we have the devil. Intertwined in, in our decision-making and our thought processes, we have the devil, the father of lies in our ears and in the waves of our culture, speaking domestically and speaking internationally. Let's, um, let's turn to John, John chapter 8 beginning at verse 31. And just keep in mind as we read this scripture together that Jesus is speaking here to the, to the religious leaders of, of the day. And, and the scriptures say this. It says, To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered them, We are Abraham's descendants, and we've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if, a son, if the son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, yet you're looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I've seen in the Father's presence, and you're doing, get this bit, and you're doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. Jesus said, if you, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham didn't do such things. Here we go again. You are doing the works of your own father. We're not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. Ouch. And you want to carry out your father's desires. And he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
And so we know a few things from this passage of Scripture. We know that the devil is real because Jesus is talking about him. We know that he comes to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus describes him as a, as a murderer. And Jesus says he's a liar, and when he lies, he speaks his native language. And I think sometimes we limit the devil's actions to the big gnarly things, you know, the, the mystery illness that lands out of the, bl the blue, the recurring nightmares or the disturbing visions. And don't get me wrong, I fully believe that the devil is capable of, of all of those things. But right here, in the midst of the most in-depth commentary of Jesus on the devil, Jesus speaking to the religious leaders of the day, he doesn't talk about the mystery illness or the disturbing visions. He says, he is the father of lies. And I'd suggest that the devil has no issues with seeding his ideas and lies in the hearts of journalists, social influences, of governments, of corporations, and in me, and in you. We can go back to Genesis chapter 3, and Megan referred to this last week, and go back to Genesis chapter 3, the devil is speaking to Eve in the garden, and he says to her, did God really say you must not eat from the tree? I know what God told you, but you certainly won't die. In fact, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, and you will have everything that you need in life. And the devil, full of distortion and full of deception, says to Eve, follow your heart. 21 days to a happier, more fulfilling life. Follow your heart. Take control. Even though you have a God that is full of grace and provision of good intention, the devil says, go on, you take control. God's holding back on you. Eat from the tree. Place your faith in this. Invest in this. Watch this. Try this. Buy this. Earn this. Follow your heart. And then you'll find control. And then you'll find happiness. And all will be well and you won't be anxious for anything. And you will have peace. And it's a lie from the father of lies. I'm convinced more than ever, that one of the tactics of the enemy is to destroy our peace in order that our thinking is diverted from who we are in Christ and the diversion too of the potential that we have through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the potential of creativity. Because our attention is diverted somewhere else. You see, the enemy is incredibly nervous about who we will become in Christ because of God's plan for our lives. And we're distracted and the awareness of the presence of God is diluted and overshadowed and our relationship with him is, is fractured because anxiety is a way of impacting our ability to, to love just in the same way that anxiety impacts love in a relationship with your wife or your husband or your family or your friends. So too, and perhaps firstly, it impacts our ability to maintain a healthy, loving, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's just where the enemy wants us, isn't it? And he'll use all sorts of things to wedge that distraction. He'll use opinions on COVID. He'll use opinions on the Ukraine war, social media, economic forecasts, the share market, interest rates, relationships, a badly worded text, an incorrectly worded email. 
And he takes us down a path of anxiety and distraction, and the more lost at sea we become, the better he likes it. I remember a, a time in my life when I'd switched careers and I was working as a project man manager for a, an entrepreneur, and things weren't going well for, financially for Sally and, and, and I, and we had two beautiful daughters, two little girls, and one big mortgage, and salary was um, intermittent, and at worst, uh, nothing at all. And I took it upon myself to be anxious. And I remember a friend telling me, you just need to get into prayer, Mike. You just need to get into prayer. But you see, what had happened was that my anxiety had overcome my desire to have that intimate relationship with God that I desperately needed. And so I was lost at sea. And I'd lost sight of him, and I quickly needed to re-navigate my way back to Christ. You see, the lies that the devil demonstrates in Genesis in the garden is what Jesus is talking about here in John. And it's what we're seeing and it's what we're experiencing here and now and the devil is convincing our Western culture that there is no need for God. And John Mark Comer, he says this, he said, secularism is an attempt to live as an entire society as if there is no God. And it's the same old strategy of the devil, the same results that I read from page 21 in my Bible in Genesis chapter 3 that I read in the front page of the Herald today. And it leads to fear and it leads to anxiety. Such an encouraging message this morning, eh? It does get better. Matthew 14. You know this story well. Let, let me read it to you. Matthew 14. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray, and later that night he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land. It was buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. I love this sentence. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Just a casual sort of a statement. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reaches out his hand, catches him, and says, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. See, the disciples had been on the lake for something like nine hours they were tired, they were battling winds and waves, and Jesus was nowhere to be seen. I did a bit of research about the storms that occur on the Sea of Galilee. The waves get to 10 feet in height, so this is not just some sort of little flurry of activity on the lake. Jesus is nowhere to be seen, and shortly before dawn, Jesus comes walking towards the boat. Just as an aside, in Hebrew mythology in the first century, they, they taught that those that were lost at sea would haunt the sea at night. So you can understand the disciples then sitting in the boat, seeing this guy walking towards them, and they cry out, and some translations say they screamed in terror. They cry out and they say it's a ghost. And in verse 27, Jesus says, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid nearly smack bang in the middle of this whole story, about 90 words on either side, Jesus says, it is I, 
And it's the same translated word that God used in Exodus when he's speaking with Moses, when he says, go tell them that I am that I am. Jesus says, I am. And perhaps Matthew is saying, you know what, this is the central part of this whole story. This is the whole crux of the matter. Jesus Christ is saying, I am. And it's interesting, you know, that this is the second storm that we read about in Matthew. Back in chapter 8, you'll know this story as well. Jesus calms the storm. Many of you know the story. Jesus is in the boat sleeping. Whoa! Jesus is in the boat sleeping. A storm erupts. Waves are sweeping over the boat. The disciples are panicked and they whack Jesus and they say, You have little. Uh, Jesus says, You have little faith. Why are you afraid? And then he speaks to the waves and the wind and everything is suddenly calm and they say, Who is this man? So, two storms. One in chapter 8, one in chapter 14. But in, in, in this second storm, Jesus is nowhere to be seen. Disciples have been without him for an extended period of time. And the storm hasn't been calmed. It's interesting also that in this storm, there's no mention of Jesus restoring peace at all. In fact, it says that Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid. And it wasn't until Peter was back in the boat that actually things calmed down. So it makes sense to me that the storm continued to beat down on them in the, in the midst of Jesus' presence and in the mid of, midst of Peter's faith. Bill Johnson says this. In the world, peace is always the absence of something, noise or war or conflict. In the kingdom, you can be in the middle of all of those and have peace because peace is a person. You see, peace is not the absence of something, it's the presence of someone. And I think in the second storm, Jesus is making something abundantly clear to us. The waves and the wind and the darkness and the current are surrounding you, but it is I. I am. I'm here. And this is our navigation for life. It's not me being my best self. It's not economic forecasts or financial predictions. This is our navigation for life. Or rather, he is our navigation for life. The only true fixed point. Sailors in the Northern Hemisphere talk about their fixed point, the Polaris, the North Star. It lies in direct line with the axis of the Earth's rotation above the North Pole. It stands almost motionless, and all the stars of the northern sky appear to rotate around it, and it became known as the, as the ship star. Sailors used this as their fixed point when there was nothing else to guide them. And while this, this northern star is a useful metaphor to describe the position that Christ is willing and has taken for us, a simple nod in the direction of the star isn't enough. You see, we're invited to a two-way relationship. We're invited to commence a journey of transformation from the inside out, to submit to a revolution of character. And everything depends, therefore, on this administration and the, the management of this key relationship with Jesus. Peter knew Jesus as his North Star. He got that. But when he took his eyes off Jesus, he was soon in trouble. And while we're in the middle of this gray zone, of this, of this culture storm, of this liminal space in between two eras, Jesus says this. He says, come to me. 
all of you who are weary, carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come to me. It's a verb, it's active, it's an imperative. There's urgency attached to it, it's important. But it demands a a determined journey towards the North Star. It demands a restructuring of priorities, of changes to the way we think and act, and changes to the things that we have been culturally trained to concern ourselves with. As Chris mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we need to be prepared to be countercultural in the world, but not off the world. Here's some further good news. His peace doesn't have to be earned because it is given to us. John 14 says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give it to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Not the peace that this world gives that's reliant on the absence of noise or war or conflict, but the peace of the presence of the person, Jesus Christ. You know, this isn't a three point, one of those three-point messages this morning. It's just got one point. Jesus Christ is the only fixed point worth pursuing, the only one worth swimming against a culture storm towards. Could I have the worship band up, um, please? Jesus Christ is the only fixed point worth pursuing, the only one worth swimming against a culture storm towards. 21 days to a happier, more fulfilling life. It's not sustainable without Christ. Be my best self, or be your best self. It's just not sustainable without Christ. Go with the flow. If Christ isn't in the flow, then it's not sustainable. But Christ, our day star, our morning star, our northern star, is sustainable and constant and never-changing and never-ending in the same yesterday and today and forever. And he is the way and the truth and the light. You know, it may well be today that today is a decision day for you. Perhaps you need to retrace your steps back to a relationship with Christ that may have been robbed from you as you have dealt with the turbulence of life. It may be that you have been overwhelmed by the uncertainty of the future and your fears have now moved to anxiety, to persistent fear. And I really feel God pressing on me over the last couple of weeks that there are some here that actually need to do something about this and that might mean that you need to come forward while our prayer teams are are praying at the end of the gathering. But I feel like God wants to say to you, please answer my cry. Please answer my cry that says, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, I do not give it to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And Christ is saying, come to me and I will give you my peace. 
Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.